going to be able to preach today or not, but they were all pretty brief so and to the point. So Luke, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I didn't give you the chapter. Chapter 21, <clears throat> we're going to read verses 5, 6, and 7, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 20 through 24. This is a very appropriate passage for the weekend. Uh, in God's providence, we have lined this up with the celebration of our nation's independence. And uh, it's a timely message, I think, for us. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 7, and then 20 through 24. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see... The days will come in which not one stone shall be left on, upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? What all of us want to know. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, we want to uh, take this Independence Day weekend, Sunday, tomorrow, of course, the 4th, to um, take a look at what, for the Christian, what patriotism looks like. And this is going to maybe unsettle a few of you. Um, we have to think a little more deeply than what uh, the world thinks of and what I hear many Christians doing of wearing red, white, and blue and uh, walking around making declarative statements about our country and um, calling upon God's blessing um, with the statement, God bless America. And for those of you on the podcast that might be in another country, it could be your country. God bless Russia or India uh, or Haiti or Peru, Japan. Uh, that We don't have the corner on the market on God's blessing. By the way, I don't know if you knew that, um, that America has that. For Jesus, his statement would have sounded something like this. God bless Israel. We would say, well, of course. They're his people. But yet, here we are in, by far, the place that symbolized who and what Israel was as a people and a nation. We're on the Temple Mount. We are seeing what is essentially the pinnacle of architectural and uh, 
architectural design, but even more than that, the artistry of what was available in the decades prior and during uh, the apostles in Jesus' lifetime. This was one of the highlights in the entire Roman Empire was the Temple Mount and what Herod had done to it. Um, we think of some of his other work projects, but uh, he spared no expense in developing the Temple Mount um, that it would rival anything in Rome, anything in Athens, anything in Ephesus. This was Herod's desire. And we are there and it becomes really the emblem of the nation. To bring it into our context, we would have to think of the mall in Washington, D.C. And monument after monument, if you think in those kinds of things, something that just epitomizes our country. The Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Houses of Congress. And imagine one who calls himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords walking along there and saying, it won't be long and all this will be rubble. What kind of patriotic statement is that? It won't be long and all this will be rubble. This whole hilltop is going to be decimated. This whole city is going to be overrun. We are, you are going to be taken away as a nation. You are going to be destroyed. You're going to be led off into captivity. And this is not just for a year or two. This is not even for just 70 years. This is for times, times, times. He uses a very interesting prophetic word of the times, not the time, but the times of the Gentiles. When I say that's not a very patriotic thing to say, what happened to God bless America and we can overcome and, and there is no enemy that can stand up against us? What happened to that? And so here they are walking and if you want to consider that Passover is Independence Day for Israel. Remember Passover? It was the day they had victory, ultimate victory over Egypt and they were released from slavery and, and became what we know as a modern nation state of Israel. It was their independence. And here Christ is there on Independence Week walking among the greatest symbol of their capital, the Temple Mount, and making this kind of a declaration. He says, the things which you say, see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This hilltop will be decimated. And I want you to notice that those days are come, have come. They weren't far off. They were within a generation of Christ's declaration. He's going to describe it a little bit further. But I just want you to set the tone to understand why the disciples are shocked and almost aghast at this statement. Here, um, they were anticipating that they were coming up and this would be a great time for Christ to reinstitute a new independence. 
as the king of Israel to overthrow the Romans once and for all and to usher in a kingdom era where there would be no illness, no sickness, no sorrow, no sadness. There would be no want because he would be feeding them. There would be, there would, they would be the princes of the kingdom, the twelve. This is what was in their mind going into that in this season. And they saw the culmination. They didn't hear. They did not hear that I was going there to be, that Jesus was going there to be crucified, to be sold, to be judged, to be witnessed against. They only thought this is a great time. What better time for the Messiah to establish us as a nation anew? And here he is making this kind of a declaration that here the crowning symbol of our nation he is declared as prophet will be thrown down. And so their statements um, interesting in verse 7 of chapter 21 how it says, it says, Teacher, but when will these things be? And that emph- emphasis, emphaticness um, is on the but. But, but, are you, are you sure? I mean, it can't be any time soon. You must be thinking way, way, way down the line. Well, after your kingdom era. And he'd say, oh no, it's soon. In fact, I have instructions for you to prepare you for its occurrence. To be within the generation of its declaration. And so they had to have some clear instructions on what to do and how to communicate to the people of of Israel to prepare, specifically the people of Jerusalem, but really the whole church age of how to brace yourself for what's coming. We looked last week at his general statements of of, uh, uh, wars and rumors of war, of pestilence and and famines in various places and things along that line, of uh, all that would go on during the church age of false prophets and false declarations of Christ, um, went on and said that they would be hunting you down, persecuting you, that you are going to be hated by those that you love. One of the speakers talked about this a little bit, very, very briefly, about going in and hearing a speaker saying, um, if you don't hate your wife, you're not a godly person today. Because the Bible says that in your love for Jesus, by comparison, the world says, why do you hate your wife like that? When we come to a passage like this, I want to share with you, and our love for Jesus might be construed by many as hating our country. When in fact, it is our loving service to Jesus Christ that is the greatest loving act I can do for my country. Just as the greatest loving act I can do for my wife is to love Jesus multiplied times any commitments I have made to her. So much so that the world might look at it and say, you don't love your family. 
There is one dangerous thing I see going on, and I, I, we stopped in at Focus on the Family um, on the way home in Colorado Springs. We also made stops on our way home. So um, we had to go to Fargo Pizza in Colorado Springs. That's mandatory pretty much for us anytime we travel through Colorado Springs. Olympic Training Center and Focus on the Family, and then what we wrote to see what else we did. We heard their president speaking a little opening video, and again and again he keeps using the superlatives when referring to his family. Nothing is more important. Nothing else matters on your deathbed but your family. Nothing, and every superlative made me do that. Wrong. There is so much that is so much more important than my family. It would be a horrific thing for me lying on my deathbed with a loving family around me and have done nothing for thousands who are on their way to hell. Because I was too concerned about preserving the love of my family or their attentions. We run a danger, a risk, that is very real, of supplanting patriotism, uh, I'm sorry, of supplanting our Christianity with patriotism, of supplanting our love for Christ with love of family, and setting up these idols in our life. And Christ Jesus here essentially says, listen, you can't love Jerusalem more than me. Because Jerusalem is rejecting me. And that's essentially what he's saying about every entity in your life. You can't love your country more than Christ when your country is rejecting Christ. You cannot love your family more than Christ when your family rejects Christ. They cannot be compared, for we have a jealous God who says, I alone am your God. And so we come to this and we can imagine the, the disciples going, wait a minute, this is not what we want to hear. And guess what? That's exactly what the Old Testament prophets had to deal with. The people are sitting there saying, what do you mean the Assyrians are going to come? That's not a very nice thing to say about your country. How unpatriotic. Let's kill them. And they did. Why? Well, he's unloyal. Now, he was the most loyal Israelite in the land. For he declared the truth of God to his people. A people who are rejecting their God. So the disciples are concerned. But, 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 when are these things going to take place? And Jesus says, Description says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then no, there's no help. It's over. As soon as the armies surround it, as soon as there's a, the next time you see a great army come up against Jerusalem, it's over. It's over. And of course, this occurred in 66 AD. In 66 AD, there was a rebellion in Jerusalem. It was not triggered really by 
Jerusalemites, by Israelites, it was triggered by a Roman who did some things trying to gain some of the wealth of the temple. And in the midst of that, it got picked up on by the Israelites and they um, rebelled against that, which is expected. I mean, they're going to protect their nation's symbolic presence in Jerusalem. And so this rebellion was stirred up by a Roman proconsul who's there, and, and Josephus records this extensively uh, and describes it. And suddenly, things had to be done. And Caesar sent a man to take care of it. A few people that you know helped out by sending theirs to join this army. Cestius was the leader of that army. They surrounded it. And Jesus Christ's declaration was, when it's surrounded, know that the end is here. Don't go in. Pray you're not pregnant. It's going to be bad. Cestius laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And by Josephus' decree or description, um, he was within a day of conquering it. And then Josephus says, for the strangest thing, for no reason in the world, literally he says that, for no reason in the world, Cestius turned around and marched home. Marched away. He might go, oh, Jesus was wrong. Jesus was wrong. And in fact, many of the Israelites were, the, the people in Jerusalem, uh, especially the rebels' force, um, were encouraged by that and said, we're going to chase this guy. And they did. Chased him right into a valley and decimated much of his army, humiliated them in that valley with Israelites all along the ridges, blocking the front of that canyon, decimated him. And had to sneak off in the night. I said, oh, Jesus was wrong. But that little interruption, that little parenthesis and that's all it was, was a parenthesis. Because that enraged the Romans to such a degree, they sent Titus with his legions to destroy Jerusalem. No, no sympathy. You see, if Cestius had gone in, what Jesus Christ declares here would never have happened. He would have gone in, squelched the rebellion, the temple would have stood, his goal was not to take care of that. His goal was simply to take out the rebellion and to uh, restore Roman order there. But that's not what Jesus prophesied. That was Cestius's mission. It was not to demolish Jerusalem. He was simply to bring this rebellion under control and reestablish Roman order there. Cestius, for some reason that no one on earth understood when he was winning clearly marches away. And this group of rebellious Israelites, instead of just staying home, chased him and humiliated that army. Rome was furious and said, we'll teach them a lesson, not one stone on another. Titus's mission was decimate that city. Destroy it completely, particularly, particularly the temple. 
During that little parenthesis, Josephus describes what Jerusalem was like. The army had gone off to chase Cestius. Many were trying to resupply Jerusalem, but there was another large group of people that, in Josephus' terms, abandoned ship. That's literally the term he uses. Uh, they, they, all, they, they flowed out of Jerusalem like people jumping out of a sinking ship and they ran to the mountains. Guess who those people were? The people of the church who remembered this statement of Jesus. And Jesus said in this statement, uh, if I could find it, <laughs> that those in, who are in Judea, in verse 21, flee to the mountains and let those in the midst of her depart, and let those who are in the country, and let not those who are in the country enter her. And so we have this description where Jesus says, this is the instruction I'm giving to a generation, and within 40 years this is going to happen, and it does occur, and these people go, wait a minute, this is a parenthesis now, we're not going to go chase, we're not going to resupply our position, Jesus told us what to do, this is our opportunity, we can obey, or we can ignore Jesus' prophecy. And they ran. They ran to Jordan. They ran to the other side, modern-day Jordan. They ran to the other side of the Jordan River and hid in the mountains of Perea. And here comes Titus. Laid siege to the city. And the description of Josephus of that city is just horrific. It wasn't long before food stores were gone. And the Romans kept pounding and pounding. And soon, cannibalism was commonplace. And the Romans kept pounding and kept pounding. The Romans were taking some losses, but they just kept coming. And every loss they took just infuriated them all the more. One of the last things, at the very last minute, Titus wanted to preserve the temple. But his army had broken through the walls and were so infuriated that they destroyed everyone they found and burned the temple to ash. And Titus made sure to desecrate that very spot. What was he trying to say to the Jewish people? You're done. You're done as a nation. You're done as a people. You're done as a religion. And since that day, Jerusalem has been trampled by Gentiles. Since that day, 70 A.D. was the fall of Jerusalem. For three and a half years, Jerusalem was under siege. From 66 when Cestius showed up to 70 A.D., for three and a half years, does that sound, is that important to you? Those three and a half years, because they're important in prophecy. Jerusalem was under siege and finally fell. And Jesus describes it here that this is going to continue. That Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is going to be desecrated by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's where we live. We live in verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles so the times of Gentiles are fulfilled. 
And this is the great time gap that Jesus Christ introduces here for us, that from 70 A.D. until He comes, Jerusalem will be in this condition of trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, specifically the Temple Mount. And if you go there today, you'll see lots of signs all around every entrance by Jewish rabbis saying, no Jew should go, no Israelite should go atop this mount. It is forbidden. This is Israel's Temple Mount. And the rabbis have forbidden any Israelite to go there because it is desecrated. Even to our day. Yes, Israel became a nation. But that wasn't the fulfillment of prophecy in 1948. The culmination of the times of the Gentiles we will know when Israel receives a portion of the Temple Mount. And even then, Revelation tells us that they're only going to get a part of it because the rest will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's in Revelation uh, 16, I believe. Better look there just to make sure. Don't want to mislead you. Nope, I take that back. It wasn't 16. Now I have to find it because I'm here. 11? Yeah, so Rob's getting 11, chapter 1. I knew it was the beginning of one of those chapters. Um, It says, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I say, well, there's the 42 months. That's three and a half years. Um, But it says that there's going to be a... uh, that there's a Gentiles um, that are going to have uh, a presence there even when there's a temple. The idea here is that there's going to be a sharing of the Temple Mount for 42 months. It's going to be shared. What are those 42 months? What are those three and a half years? Is it the fall of Jerusalem? No. That's a three and a half year period that is a type of a more pressing three and a half year period of great judgment on the earth by God at the end. That's going to precede by three and a half years of a shared temple mount. Can you imagine that? Here we have rabbis with signs everywhere. Rabbi so-and-so, rabbi so I mean, they're listed off the rabbis have declared that no Israelite should step foot on the temple mount. They can go under it. They can go to the wall, which we call the wailing wall. They go under it and they have carefully calculate exactly where they're under a certain point and they think that's the holy of holy place which of course it isn't but that is where the dome of the rock sits but any good student uh knows that the temple wasn't built there uh and in fact archaeology books that are predate 1948 when they actually were still excavating up there already had found what they thought and the oldest structure on the temple mount isn't the dome of the rock it's another little dome nobody knows why it's there God's blinded them. So they'll go underneath the Temple Mount, the tunnels. They'll go to the Wailing Wall, but no one gets up there. And here, prophecy says there's going to be a cessation of that, that there's going to be a sharing for three and a half years that Israelite temple is going to be sharing the Temple Mount with a Gentile worship. And that's the marker 
of the end of the times of the Gentiles. So when you see that in the works, count the days, count the hours, count the minutes, because your redemption is here. You see, we're in that period of the times of the Gentiles. And we need to understand that. That we are in that period of time that Israel was not looking forward to, that, that uh, disturbed the apostles greatly, but we have warning after warning of God how we ought to live in the times of the Gentiles. That we don't set our affections on things below, but on things above. That we recognize our citizenship is not of any nation here, but of the kingdom of God. And so how do we relate to our country today? How do we function as true patriots in America today? And yet as citizens, truly patriotic towards our, you know, Patriot means. What is Petros? Patra. What is that? That's your father. It means father's land. You're committed to your father's land. Who is your father? Who is your father? Capital F. My father is in heaven. And I cannot wait to be in my Father's land. But meanwhile, I'm here as a stranger, a sojourner, a pilgrim. But how do we relate to our earthly Father's land? How do I relate to my earthly patriotism? Well, I'm going to take issue with something I hear a lot of Christians say, which I think is wrong. It, does, it shows that they put country over God. They walk around and we hear this statement. We have it on our bumper stickers. We have it on our shirts. It's, this statement is, God bless America. And it's a hideous statement. And I'll tell you why. It is making a request, a demand of God, bless us regardless. What we ought to be telling our country is it's time for America to bless God. It's time for America to respond to God as the King of kings and Lord of lords. First, on an individual basis, of course. We do not anticipate a national conversion. There's only one nation on earth that has God's full stamp of approval, and that is the nation of Israel. Our statement, God bless America, really flows against what we find in God's Word where we should be calling America to God. Why are we calling God to America? He has already come. And frankly, He has already given the most precious blood. We talk about the blood that is shed on the battlefields. And, um, and, and of course, Bill is kind of funny at the conference because they always have a workshop with the chaplains and he knew who was going to that one. And so he said, well, I figured you were going to go to that one. And I do. I, 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 um, you hear me praying for our chaplains. Um, they're very dear to my heart um, because as far as I'm concerned, they're the finest soldiers out there because they're doing much more important work than the soldiers, other soldiers that they're ministering to. 
They're doing a spiritual work in our country's name, and that is incredible that our government would pay them to do that. And yeah, it's disconcerting when our government harasses them um, and limits their ministry. But um, the most precious thing we need to be engaging in on a patriotic weekend like this is not calling God to our country, but calling our country to God. And I say, you don't want God to bless America? Not, I don't even expect God to bless America if America is rejecting Jesus Christ. And she has. And she is. The entirety of my life. Because in June of 1962, the month of my birth, was when America says, we don't want God in our society. It began. That was when prayer was kicked out of schools. June of 62. My entire life. And it is time for us to declare what our country needs to hear. And that is, first of all, there is a great judgment when you reject Jesus Christ. And the judgment on the nations is not in eternity. The judgment on the nations is today. Is this world. And it will come forward in God's pouring out of His wrath for seven years. And so what do I do to be a true, godly, earthly patriot? What do I do for my country that is of highest honor? It may indeed involve bloodshed. But it is to call our country, each individual in it, to repentance. That is not a message that is wanted to be heard in our nation anymore. It's the most patriotic act that can be done is to tell our country, you're in deep trouble. God will judge you soon. This was not an unpatriotic statement of Jesus because he didn't love Israel. Israel was the apple of his eye. Israel was the one that he had cared for and nurtured, but here he is, Israel's king, Israel's God, standing in their presence and they are already scheming how they are going to have him arrested and crucified. They have rejected Him. And given that condition, Christ prophesies their destruction. And we need to be about that business of declaring to the people around us that God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is soon. And we have that obligation to them. Will they like that? No. Will they like that we are going to Hesitate and and maybe even frown and and furrow our eyebrows. That's what I do. At the statement, God bless America. God has blessed America in the past. Why should He now? One good reason. When the, America and every facet of its culture is rejecting God. What facet hasn't? Even our churches reject His truth. 
Now, let me counterbalance that. We are not going to start marching with banners saying God hates you and is going to destroy you. Don't lump me in there with those. We are not messengers of hate. We are messengers of warning. And warning is a very loving thing. Because warning says, listen, something's coming. We want you to avoid it. That's the purpose of a warning. When I, when I have a, a young person or a child, that my, one of my kids that doesn't obey, I warn them. And uh, I only warn them once. And for some of you parents that warn and 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 warn, guess what happens eventually? It doesn't mean a thing to your kid. I warn my children once, maybe twice, and then I get up and get the scissors. Right, Brenda? Yeah. <laughs> you warn her about that hair and it got get that hair out of your food. Get that hair out get that hair out. No hair to get in the food. Boy, you should have seen our supper table that day. Woo! Everybody was upset. And I just sat down and smiled. It'll grow. The purpose of a warning is to say, listen, if you don't heed this warning, something horrible is going to happen to you, and it's going to be a lot worse than losing a lock of hair. The most loving thing we do is not to go out and condemn the world, but to go out and warn the world. That's what we're doing. God will condemn the world. God will pour out His wrath on the world. Not my job. It is not your job to go out there and condemn. It's not what we're about. This is not the age for that. It's coming. But it's to warn. And so my ministry here, here is to warn you. Our ministry in this community is to warn it. Imagine, if you will, um, standing there at a streets at a at the at a, along a street, knowing that the bridge is out, and doing nothing, waving as people go by. They'll be dead soon. They'll be dead soon. Car and truck after car and truck whiz by us, and we know that there is no bridge over that gorge. And do nothing. Are we loving? Is that loving? And yet that's exactly what we're doing to our society. We're waving. Smiling at them. Giving them no notion that there's a horrible judgment coming. We want to tell them, you're okay, God loves you just the way you are terrible message. Because you see, they don't understand the difference in our nomenclature between loving you and accepting you. And they think love means acceptance and therefore in their mind, God accepts me the way I am. I don't have to do anything. Yes, God loves you. But He hasn't accepted you as you are. You have to come to Him in His one way. And this is, this is the loving act that we are called upon to perform 
before our nation, and that is to warn them. In a loving manner, not just because we want to see them destroyed, but because we want to see them delivered. And so we warn them. Jesus Christ declares, this is what you're going to see. It will happen because they've rejected me. So it will come. How ought you to respond? Don't defend Jerusalem. Run from her. When you see that the desolation is on you, when you see the signs that I've given you, run. Run. Because all things which are written are going to be fulfilled. It will be days of vengeance, he says in verse 22. Run. We do not have a command yet to run, but it's coming real close. That is not to run away but to be lifted away. It's coming close. We'll be lifted out. We'll be airlifted. Okay, different period of time. 70 AD, run to the hills. 2011, airlifts. We don't run to the hills anymore. We get airlifted. That's our plan. Recognize the seasons and recognize where your loyalties lie in our true Father's land. And while here we'll do our very best to do the best for those around us, and that is to warn them that there is a judgment to come and that they can avoid it if they'll simply trust in Jesus Christ. Those Christians who unloaded themselves out of Jerusalem during that little parenthesis trusted Jesus' statement. And while others said, oh, we're going to beat off the Romans and we're going to win and we're going to reestablish Israel and they're all fanatical about that, there's thousands of Christians that emptied that city and ran because they trusted Jesus. And what do you know, a few months later, there's the army back with a vengeance. Oh, that we would trust Christ. Judgment is coming. He's given us fair warning. And He's given us signs to look for to evidence that the time of our airlift out is coming and that we ought to be busy about that business of warning others, even if it costs us my job, even if it costs me my family, even if it costs me my life, even if it costs me my possessions, even if it costs me my iPhone. I want to warn people. You're in trouble. And there's only one way of escape, and it's Jesus Christ. And the most loving thing I can do for you and to you as my friend, as my family, as my nation is to tell you and warn you with the hope that you will trust Jesus Christ to deliver you. You see, the greatest patriots aren't the ones that walk around saying, God bless America. The greatest patriots on our soil today are those who walk around saying repent for the judgment of God is at hand.